Hello and welcome to another episode in the Creating Customer Success podcast series. My name is Dan and I'm your host. And my name is Alex and I'm your co-host. In this series, we are interviewing customer success leaders to learn how to build and run the best CS teams. We hope you enjoy listening. So Peter, thank you so much for joining us as a guest on the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you as a guest. Now, the reason we are really excited to have you on the show is that within our industry, we conduct a series of demos. Now, sometimes this will be in the form of perhaps maybe just showcasing the product to a new point of contact. And other times it will be more from a, from a training perspective. Now, I know that with regards to kind of your material, there will sometimes be a slant from probably more of a, a sales perspective. But we do feel that a lot of the lessons from, from your books, um, from the content that you push out, is really relevant to customer success. So as a result of that, we thought it would be great to have you on the show and just understand a little bit more about your philosophy of great demo. So I guess to begin, it would be great maybe if you could just introduce yourself to the audience um, and tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Uh, background, I was born in a log cabin in 1862. Wait, wrong background. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I've <laughs> trained originally as a chemist, biochemist, did uh, software for pharmaceutical research and particularly chemical structures, biological properties and test results. Basically spent the past far too many years in software uh, doing hundreds, in fact, thousands of demonstrations. But if you will, the scales really fell from my eyes when I was on the customer side of the table um, running a, as a president of a, an organization or a business unit. Had about 120 reports. And it was when I was on the receiving end of demos from vendors just like all of us that I suddenly realized most demos are horrible. Things are being done exactly the opposite of the way most customers actually want to consume them. And that's when I founded this business 17 years ago and haven't looked back. Fantastic. And um, I guess probably from when you, you went client side, if it's okay to, to kind of position it that way, what were, I guess, some of the, the key things that stood out to you at the time with what people do wrong, essentially, on, on the demos? So first and foremost, no discovery or insufficient discovery. Um, people would qualify us things, questions like um, on the sales side, do you have a budget? Do you have a timeline? Do you have a set of needs? Are you the person to be signing? And of course, we would always say, yeah, I'm the, I'm the ultimate authority because we wanted to see what the offering was like. Um, number one, insufficient discovery. Number two, to a certain degree, ignoring discovery that was done. Uh, and simply doing the same old demo they always showed. And number three, taking, I think the phrase is, freaking forever to get to the payoff of deliverables that each individual in the audience is actually looking for. So those are, those are the major challenges. I always find it interesting, actually, because um, I think because humans are just creatures of habit, like point number two, <laughs> whereby people will just do the same, the same demo, and perhaps even know subconsciously that, it isn't the best way of perhaps maybe del delivering it, but it, it's kind of almost a fallback or, or their comfort zone. Um, yeah, do you kind of see any reasons why people perhaps maybe do that? Well, you just said it. Vic people are victims of momentum. <laughs> we have been doing the same way and will continue to do things the same way we've always done unless we're given a substantial shove in a new direction. We are indeed victims of habit that way. We're victims of momentum. So 
when um, I can give you a small sort of background story. Uh, we had, this is around 1998, we were looking at buying a CRM system for our organization. And we had about, uh, I don't know, we had about 20, 25 people in the field at that point. Uh, we in interviewed several vendors who came in and did demos for us. Most all of them organized two-hour sessions. And in those sessions, they asked that they have everybody there from our side. So we had eight-ish people in the room. Now think about this. Eight, -ish, eight, eight people in the room for two hours. That's two full working human days over several vendors. So it ended up being a fairly large investment in time. And in each demo, in all the demos, they all did the same thing in their CRM systems. They started off in their CRM system demos. They started off, well, I ask you, how do you think they started off? What's the first thing they showed us? Um, I suppose first they probably dove like, straight into the, into the product. Um, well, of course not. The first thing they did was a corporate overview presentation. Which wasn't, of course, needed because we would not have invited them in if we hadn't already vetted them as a vendor. So that was a 15 to 20 minute waste of time. Mm -hmm. But then when they plunged into the system, what do you think they showed us how to do first? Now, bear in mind, in the room, we've got um, head of sales. That's me. We had a head of marketing. We had a couple of sales managers. We had a guy in sales ops who was going to be the administrator. Uh, and I believe we had both a, um, the equivalent of a pre-sales person and a salesperson. Yeah, we did to, um, to basically be the staffer representatives. So where do you think they started? Nothing to do with sales for a guess. <laughs> Nothing to do with sales. No, the first thing they did was they said, let us show you how to set up the system. So all the things that, yeah, Alex, for those who can't see this podcast, because it's a podcast, you should have seen Alex's smile there. Um, <laughs> the first thing they showed were all the things or many of the things that one would do in the, under the, the terminology of set it and forget it. <laughs> the things would be done once and often by the vendor. Um, nobody could understand why we saw that, except that people said that's part of their standard demo when we asked later. The next thing they did was they showed us how to set up a, a new company in the system. So here's a new record. Here's a new player at that company. Here's how you put in a second player in that company. Here's how we launch a marketing campaign. Here's how we track a card marketing campaign. Two hours later, they finally got to, and we've got a bunch of great reports and dashboards. Now, I as the head of sales and the person who was ultimately making a decision on this thing had not yet seen the two um, reports that I really needed to see. What, what do you think those were as the head of sales? It's something to do with like forecasting pipeline. You, got, you just nailed it. I needed to see what does the forecast look like and what does the pipeline look like? Because those are the two things that I use to manage my business. They ran out of time before they got to either of those two, two things. And everybody else was thinking, oh my God, this looks so complicated, we'll never be able to consume it and use it productively. So that's, that's the historical perspective on demos. That's the way people have been doing demos since the first two rocks were pounded together to create COBOL. I believe that's how that happened. <laughs> so does that add to that question? <laughs> it certainly does, yeah. And um, it's, I mean, it's, it is definitely so true. And probably mistakes that I've definitely made in the past, uh, especially before kind of um kind of reading your book or just or just obtaining that experience is almost like the go-to and i think i don't i can't remember if you actually mentioned this in your book or not but um you, you can become a product expert and then you almost want to 
show off with everything that you know and you'll get the opportunity to talk about your products and like you say you won't focus on what's important to the customer and just home in on exactly why they would want to use that product and tailor it for them um, and I think that's probably something that, that a lot of people do you can become a product expert and really just almost get comfortable in that same routine around just showcasing absolutely everything um, and, and kind of not tailoring that so I suppose with regards to an ideal structure how so in that situation so we've gone through a bad example what would a good example look like and how should somebody prepare and perhaps maybe structure that so riffing off your comment about um, product experts there I would say there's there's uh, the two types of product experts and then I'll answer your question more directly the first type of product expert is the, the traditional product expert product manager for example who knows everything about his or her product and wants everyone else to know everything about that product. And I, I'm raising my hand. I was a product manager, product director for a number of years. And initially, I lived within that concept that I needed to know absolutely everything about all the features and functions, also where it was going to go over the next two years. And I needed to be prepared to gush that information <laughs> to any and all comers um, because I knew that they would just be, you know, uh, absolutely delighted to see all the things you could do with the product. Well, that's one level of product expert. The second product expert is the type that understands all the former stuff, but uh, reflects upon who he or she is talking to or presented, presenting to, seeks to understand what their objectives, what their goals are, what their needs are, and what specific capabilities they're looking for out of this offering, and then maps the delivery uh, to what the, he or she has learned. And that's actually the essence of great demo. There's, there's two things embedded in what I just said. Number one is doing sufficient discovery so you understand what this particular individual, this job title, is looking for out of your offering. And number two, then begin to rephrase what you're presenting to map to that person's specific interests. Um, <laughs> There's a classic phrase, a smart person knows all the answers, a wise person knows what questions to ask, <laughs> which is really all about discovery in that sense. So that's a partial answer. Should we, uh, should we develop that further? That would be, yeah, that'd be great. And it's so simple when you put it like that, but so many, like, like, we've, like we've been talking about, so many people perhaps maybe won't have that approach um and i suppose if somebody if the light bulb's going off right now and they're actually thinking well you know all i perhaps maybe need to do is just structure my more like demos around the person i'm speaking to like what would be the steps involved in order to, to do that so let's let's use let's just you guys as an example and a crm system that has some form of customer success capabilities in it as the if you will extended example and we'll develop it out so um which of the two of you do you want me to, to interview here, Dan or Alex? Go on, Dan. Okay, so Dan, you are a uh, customer success manager, is that correct? That's correct, yes, yeah. And of a, let's say, a mid-sized software company, how would you categorize yourselves? Um, yeah, I'd probably say mid-sized to, to probably large, large uh, enterprise. Okay, mid-sized to large. And... And by the way, I wouldn't do this quite in this ordering necessarily if this was a real conversation, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. How are you measured? How do you know at the end of the quarter or year that you have been a success? 
So with, I mean, we'd look at a number of different things. So firstly, we would look at the retention and, and growth mm-hmm. across the account. And then we would also look at product adoption. So things like usage. Um, and then probably more on a personal level, I will be kind of reviewing the types of relationships that we have with our clients from probably more of an outcomes perspective. So making sure I have a clear view around what different stakeholders want to achieve. And then so if if you were using a CRM system as let's say your primary tool for tracking your progress, what kind of reports or dashboards then would you be looking for? I'd probably be looking firstly for things like indicators of risk. So understanding Mm -hmm. Ah, perhaps maybe a client hasn't been contacted for a, a specific amount of time. If their product usage has fallen off, um, if I've not done specific actions on an account or with key contacts. Uh, so I want all of those different things sort of uh, flagged to me so I know where to, where to focus my time. And Okay, and that would be sort of the Monday morning dashboard, right? What, where are my risk areas? What do I need to, to assign or work on this week? Um, how about at the end of two weeks when you want to se- assess your performance, what would you want to be able to see? So I'd probably also want to be tracking against activity that I've delivered, but then also some of the, those things that we spoke about. So actually understanding um, tension, adoption, tension, exactly. Yeah. Of upcoming renewals, how are we performing, what stage are they at? So at this point, and I'm getting out of the, the, um, if you will, our, our manufactured dialogue, um, at this point, we already, you and I now already understand that there are probably three specific capabilities that you, you would want to see in a demo. Um, number one, not necessarily in correct order here, but pretty close. Number one is the, um, that dashboard that shows what do I need to work on this week? Um, and that dashboard might actually manifest as a result of alerts that came out of email um, that said, hey, you've got five customers that have not had sufficient number of touches in the last uh, one month, uh, you need to either, you know, you need to, to address these guys. Um, the number one, then, is a specific capability that is, enables those kinds of challenge, um, those kinds of customer risk, at-risk customers. Is that the phrase you'd use? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Okay. So those kinds of at-risk customers to be surfaced so that you can then work them. Um, Number two is some kind of dashboard that enables you to look across the suite of customers and see which ones are, if you will, <laughs> green, which one are yellow, which ones are yellow, and which ones are red that you really need to work. And at the end of the two weeks, you want to be able to have a, um, an opportunity to check your performance and the performance over the t- of the team over the past two weeks and see how you're mapping uh, to your overarching KPIs and, and objective measurements of success. So in our five minutes, I believe we have reasonably zeroed in on three things you would want to see out of that CRM system. Um, and right. So let me yeah. pause there and ask, is this, is this resonating? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, could, I, could, I was sort of listening along and smiling to myself because the way you were positioning the questions was essentially just, I guess, saying to Dan, what do you want me to show you? That's essentially what the, the background of the, the question was. Right. Now, there's, there's two sets of capabilities. And this is where the product expert, that second class, if you will, or second type, I shouldn't say second class, that second type of product expert really will shine. Because 
Um, you are familiar with capabilities that you're already aware of, but it's also possible that there are capabilities in software that you are unaware of that could help you do your, your jobs. And so part of the job of the customer success manager is then to ask some follow-on questions. You know, would it be helpful or useful, for example, and I'm going to just make this up, <laughs> would it be helpful or useful in addition to the, the, um, the customers that are in the red with respect to insufficient touches to date, uh, would it be helpful or useful if you are able to see a list of those customers who will be at risk over the next three months based on predictive analytics or prescript proscriptive analytics? And you would say, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'd say, well, we have that capability. Would you like a, to take a, just a quick look at, at what that might look like at a high level? And you'd say, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah, so there's two types of if you will, discovery questions, and this is a very fast, but very simple discovery dialogue. There's two types of discovery questions. Those are which are designed to uncover needs and capabilities um, about which you are probably already interested and aware. And the second are needs and capabilities that you may never have ideated. You just never came up to the idea. Oh, I didn't. I had no idea that was possible. Um, pausing there. Um, comments or questions on that so far? I was just going to say that the next thing I, w I would ask is, so at the stage of doing discovery, you've obviously used that as your identifiers in terms of this is what I need to focus on for my demonstration. And I guess the next step in, in my brain when I think about this is how do you then inspire the person that you're giving the demo to and get them to buy into what you're about to show them? So how do you get them to sort of switch into that mode where they will sort of sit up and pay attention because they think that they're about to be shown something that is going to help them solve a problem? So there's, there's um, the pathway you might say branches at this point. If you've already ascertained that the, the person, and let's talk about just in the, an individual at a time and not a group, because the group dynamics are more challenging. Um, if, if you've already ascertained that this person wants to move from their current methods to the new offering, then you don't really need to develop the next thing. Um, if so, if, if, if Dan is already saying, I hate what I'm using today, which is Excel or whatsoever, it's insufficient, it's full of errors, I'm unhappy with it, then you can sort of skip the step of uncovering real pain and, and comparing value deltas, if you will. Um, in which case, you could simply say, well, okay, Dan, would you like to take a look at, at uh, you know, how our offering would manifest, begin to help you potentially address those things, he would say yes. And we would start off though, and I'm gonna come back to the other scenario, but we would start off by presenting the end results, those three things that we identified that, that Dan or Alex was looking for. We'd present those things right up front, describe what he's seeing. So Dan, what you're looking at right now is a dashboard that shows um, your list of 50 companies that you're responsible for. Those that are in green are companies that are doing well. They're making their, their uh, they're using the capabilities. We can see that from what's going on um, <laughs> with our logs. The companies in orange are ones that don't seem to be doing as much. There's a few users maybe, but not a lot. And the ones that are red are clearly needing help. So right away you're able to see that, which will enable you then to immediately partition your resources, um, you know, support the greens, don't forget the greens, but to sit down with the yellows and find out what's going on 
and to put together plans with the Reds to make sure that, that they really can move forward so you can ultimately achieve your renewal objectives and adoption and growth objectives. So we'd show those, those last screens first, if you will. That's the idea of do the last, screen, uh, last thing first. At which point, if it resonates with Dan, he might say, okay, I get it. And then he starts to ask questions. And that's exactly where you want to be. A demo should be a conversation. After that first initial screen or two or three, a demo should become <clears throat> a two-way bi-directional conversation where the customer's engaged. He or she's asking, okay, I get it. Gee, is there a way to set up an alert for the Reds um, based on a different threshold? You'd say, absolutely. Let's take a look at how to do that if you'd like. He'd say, um, gee, can I get a report <clears throat> so that I can have a slice in time of where things were? Absolutely. Uh, if you'd like, we can show you how to do that. So it becomes a dialogue as you're going that way. And effectively, the dialogue runs as long as Daniel has questions or that there have been capabilities that have been discussed that he needs to see or wants to see. So let me pause there and ask, how does, how does that resonate? It definitely stands out to me as being a better way of engaging and probably just thinking about it from how I would want to learn. I think Alex and I was actually talking about this um, earlier today, but if I was learning perhaps maybe an editing software, so for example, at the moment, I'm trying to use Adobe Premiere to like create videos and, and edit those. A lot of the training material I'm coming across is 45 minutes long and it takes you through everything. Now, I have a specific question that I want to find the answer to and I want to learn how to do that one thing. And it sounds like this is how you're saying to perhaps maybe position those demos, find that one or two things that they perhaps want to use your product or service for, which they may not already know, but you need to uncover that with questioning. And then once you come across that, that's where they're going to then start to ask more questions about how does that work? Um, and then you're able to go in and showcase the functionality as opposed to where a lot of demos can go wrong. You almost showcase everything and how to do it and you haven't really sparked that interest yet and, and discovered exactly what it is that, that, that they want to find. And there's a, but wait, there's more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'll give you the example. How, many, how often, so this is product expert number one, going back to our earlier discussion. How often have you ever heard somebody presenting a demo say, now, if you want to do this other thing, mm. or you want to do this other, other thing, mm -hmm. um, and what's going on there is you are, as the presenter, you are introducing um, branches. And for folks that have ever done coding or programming, you know that anytime you say if, you're introducing a branch. Mm -hmm. So if this, then that, or also another thing. And all you're doing is you're adding complexity. Um, classic phrase, I hear this in training so often, um, and it's the phrase or. So there are three ways to do this, is what you'll hear uh, a customer success person say or a trainer say. There's three ways to do this. You could do it this way or this way or this way. And what's immediately, either of you, Dan or Alex, immediately would you, pref would you ask the, uh, the trainer of the three ways? Which one is the easiest, I guess? There you go. Don't, don't give me three options. Tell me the one that's going to be easiest, the one that I would likely do 90% of the time. Later on, if I'm interested, I can dig in and find out, or there's customer service. Oh, heck, I could even contact my good friend at customer success and find out if there's an if case that I, we didn't cover in that, that initial session. Um, 
we have a mantra in Great Demo, very simple mantra. And um, if this was uh, an, uh, an opportunity where the visuals here were important in this podcast, I would ask you to put your hands up with your thumb outstretched like this. We have Zoom on right now and say the following words, fewest number of clicks. Now, why do I recommend fewest number of clicks in all pathways in a demo? I suppose it, well, it probably just makes it simpler. So one, from a learning perspective, they're going to be able to remember fewer steps, but then also you don't want to get it to an extent where it looks too complicated because it's probably going to put them off from, from wanting to use it. When you ask the question, what are the, the most likely reasons why something fa a demo fails? Uh, number one is probably it looked too complicated. That's the phrase you hear from uh, the customer after they've been inflicted with a traditional demo. Their minds are reeling. They've seen an hour of clicks to get through one or two workflows. And they're thinking, oh my God, do I have to do all this? So fewest number of clicks. Um, Let's, I'll just pause there. Um, questions, comments, thoughts on that? It's kind of like what you said at the, the start in terms of people being creatures of habit and you just sort of fall back into that trap. And I guess that also goes hand in hand with, um, you know, you just said it a moment ago, Peter, in terms of like, most people will book a demo in for an hour because all meetings are always an hour long. An yeah. hour, then, but there's nothing religious about an hour. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess what you're saying is like the more courageous thing to do is once you get to the point where you've satisfied their needs and you've shown them how to do it, just stop there. Even if you're only half an hour into a, the scheduled one-hour meeting, just bless you. There's no, we were just saying there's nothing religious about an hour. When you're done, be done. Um, I cannot tell you how many times we finished up demos early with a customer and, you know, 40 minutes into an hour demo, everybody's satisfied. They've all seen what they need to say, at which point what I counsel my teams to do is to say, hey, folks, it looks like we finished up 20 minutes early today. That's 20 minutes that you get back in your lives from XYZ software. And then the customer walks out of the room going, wow, that was terrific. And now I can go and get some real work done. <laughs> Yeah, as opposed to having to sit through another 20 minutes of all this, all right. this. <laughs> so there's, yeah. So the, um, the morals so far are, number one, ask sufficient questions to understand what it is the customer is trying to achieve, what are their main workflows, what are their KPIs, what specific capabilities are they looking for out of the software. Number two is to understand in your own mind, well, what are the end deliverables that represent the end deliverables that that customer is looking for, because you're going to want to show those right up front, describe what they're seeing, what the value is associated with making the change. We should come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, and then ask the question, is this the kind of thing you're looking for? Because if it is, then the conversation is going to proceed. If it's not, well, then you have a major disconnect and you better have another discussion. But that then normally proceeds to a wonderful conversation. Now, I want to introduce an analogy because you just said something that was beautiful, and that is you just go as, as far as you need to. Um, last century, there was something called a newspaper. Are you guys remember things called newspapers? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just. So, um, I don't know anybody that actually gets physical delivery of a newspaper today. However, <laughs> the way that news is presented on the web follows exactly the same idea that the ancient technology called newspapers um, also follows, and it's, and it's a structure called inverted pyramid. And the concept is enormously relevant to demos. 
uh, in a newspaper article, well, how do you choose which article you want to read first? What do you scan for? Headline. Headlines and images. <laughs> yeah. And, and the web works exactly the same. We scan for headlines and images. We select the one we want, and we may read the caption for the, uh, the image. There may be a subtitle for the headline. But then after that, what do we read next? First sentence? First sentence or first paragraph, because in a well-written article, that first sentence or paragraph uh, crisply summarizes everything else that's in that article. It's called the lead. Remember that? Don't bury the lead. Mm. But don't bury the lead. The lead is, is the first paragraph. It's a crisp review of everything else that's in that article. And then as you read deeper and deeper into the article, you're getting to finer and finer levels of detail. And most people just don't even consciously think about this, but we exit from web-based articles or newspaper articles. We exit out of them when we have read as much as we are interested in. We can apply exactly that same principle to demos by showing the, the last thing first, <clears throat> that most important portion of that person's workflow or deliverable. We then dive into that, if you will, article, demo article. We through a conversation of questions and answers and mutual exploration, we go as deep as that person has interest, and then we exit. Um, let, me call, let me pause there and ask, does that, how does that sound? Comments, questions, observations on that? Yeah, I think um, a question that comes to mind, actually, is probably about the interest level. So would you say that there's a specific amount of time that people are likely to give you their attention for? Um, Yes, and it's totally different for each job title. This is, and this is an important point. If you're dealing with C-suite, uh, senior VPs, VPs, you got about six minutes. That's actually the rubric we teach in Grid Demo Workshops, about six minutes to get to the point, review their situation, and show them what they're interested in. Um, if, you're trying, if you've got a, somebody at that level in a training class or a customer success you know, class of some time, you probably are not going to have more than about 20 minutes of that person in the, the meeting room or the virtual meeting room. So that's about as deep as you'll ever be able to go with them. And frankly, if they see what they're looking for in that first six to 10 minutes, they may, well, what, will, what might they often do? And they do. Either, I suppose, leave the meeting because they've got what they yeah. need. Um, yeah, they say, folks, this looks terrific. I've yeah. seen what I need to see. You guys can stay here and torture the vendor as long as you like. And then they get up, give a thumbs up, thumbs up, and leave the room. Middle managers, they need to see um, dashboards. They need to see you know, status of projects and um, workflows, if you will. Uh, and their job generally is to surface challenges, problems, opportunities, exceptions, and then parse them out to individual team members. So their, their uh, depth of level of interest is probably on the order of you know, 10 to 15 minutes. I'm just very roughly genera generalizing. This is highly dependent on the nature of the software. Um, and then staff members, they're working workflows. So they want to see the full workflow. You know, what do I have to do to resolve this problem, for example? You know, although still, I recommend starting with the end result, show them what resolution looks like. And once you've confirmed that that's what they want to achieve, then you take them back to the beginning of the workflow, take them through completing it in the fewest number of clicks. They say, oh, okay, I get it. And then they think and they ask, okay, well, how do I deal with the situation where blah, 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 
You then go back, answer that question, and now you are, if you will, going in deeper and deeper into that uh, newspaper article, or as we like to phrase it in the methodology, you are peeling back the layers, but in accord with the customer's depth and level of interest. So high-ranking people, their demos and their interest is going to be crisp. It's going to be a, literally a few minutes, um, most typically. Caveat, they may stay in the room or the virtual room to see how their teams are reacting, but that's probably it. They're satisfied. Middle managers is going to be a little bit longer. Staff members, they want to understand how to, how to actually execute the workflows because now they're going to be forced to do it. Um, administrators, system administrators are a totally separate animal. They could consume very long portions of time because they need to know, they need to know all the stuff that typically speaking, you're looking to do once or only rarely. So setting up the system, administering, adding new users, killing users, um, you know, implementing new workflows, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Four user populations. Think actually that's a good way for customer success people to think about uh, their demos and their interactions, that they have four user populations. They've got um, senior executives or senior managers managers and frontline managers, mm. staff members, and the admins. Interesting. And especially around the workflows that you mentioned there, would you advise people, so with those four types of almost like audience personas that you could be demoing to, do you think it might help people if they come up with a workflow around what they're going to show? So whilst that qualification will still be really important, perhaps based on doing this over a kind of a, a number of different uh, scenarios then get to a stage where you say right well this person is in a similar role they're in a similar position and this is the workflow that i'm going to take them through but also in advance of that i will just do some qualification to make sure i'm on the on the right tracks so this this raises a couple of interesting um alternative ideas and particularly useful for customer service folks um have how often have you guys dealt with situations where you suddenly found you had uh you know five or ten or twenty people in a room of a of a variety of job titles and the and the mission was go get them excited about the software lots <laughs> yeah lots. <laughs> um there's two tools you can use to help begin to partition the population and engage with them number one is called the menu approach and it's exactly, it works exactly like the menu in a nice restaurant. So let's say that you are, um, a CRM system is a perfect example because you've got populations of potential users ranging from uh, sales management, senior sales management, sales management, salespeople, marketing management, marketing folks, sales operations, customer success, who else, customer service. So you have a whole range of populations. Um, and they've got different interests that they might be interested in pursuing out of the system. So a terrific approach is to, to build a menu, which basically says, here are a range of things we could talk about today. So if you're in sales, you're interested in um, forecasting and pipeline, um, there's that topic. So you know, how many of you are interested in that? Oh, it's the head of sales? Good. We better address him or her first, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Um, how many folks here are salespeople? Oh, okay, you're in sales. Um, are you interested in, in um, you know, how easy it will be, ha, 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 CRM systems, how easy it will be for you to keep your records up to date and, you know, what few things the system might actually do for you, like helping you uh, consolidate your forecast 
or get, um, if you will, some self-coaching on your pipeline where your pipelines are stronger, weaker, so forth. So you, you build a menu, and the menu enables you to very rapidly partition the room and to understand who's interested in what topics, at which point you can rank, prioritize those topics in accord with job title and or you know, number of people that are interested. And then you now have a structure for that demo meeting that effectively says, okay, for the head of sales, we're going to go through the, um, the forecast and pipeline and coaching dashboards and tools. Uh, for the frontline managers, we're going to do the same thing, but we're going to go down a little bit another level. Uh, for the sales folks themselves, we're going to look at how you guys can manage your own accounts and self-coach to a certain degree, self-manage your pipelines. Um, marketing, we're going to do as a totally separate uh, segment because you guys are interested in how to set up campaigns, mature those, um, edit and change and improve the ideas of sales qualified leads versus marketing qualified leads, and so on. And then you set up the demo. The demo now becomes a series of, to follow the restaurant analogy, individual courses uh, presented just as if it was a restaurant. So Dan and Alex wanted salads. We were, were not interested in appetizers. Um, you know, Judy wanted the fish dish. That's all she wanted and so forth. So let me pause there and ask, okay. does, that, does that resonate? Yeah, it makes complete yeah. sense. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the question I've probably got around that actually, so with the whole qualification process, would you advise doing that perhaps in advance of the meeting with particular points of contacts? So best case, yes. And I'm actually going to give you two best cases. The very best case is where the sales team, the salesperson and pre-sales person have actually already captured that information um, into whatever system you're using. We teach the idea of something called a situation slide, which effectively says that for this particular job title, here is his or her uh, top-level goal or objective. Here's the problems that are getting in the way with the existing environment. Here are the specific capabilities that person is looking for. Here's the gain, the tangible gain that he or she is hoping to achieve. And here's the timeline, if you will. Here's a date by when they want to have a solution in place. And here's a kicker that we'll come back to. Here's a value realization event <clears throat> that is specific to that individual. So if that information is collected in the pre-sales process, way back in sales and pre-sales discovery, that same information should flow all the way through from pre-sales to go live to implementation to go live to customer success. And if you are provided with this thing called a situation slide, you're able to look at, that, look at that and immediately pick up, if you will, where implementation took off and say, dear head of sales, um, based on our records here, you said you're concerned about making your numbers. You said that you had insufficient views into your pipeline and forecast and inability to coach. You, were looking for, you said you were looking for some way to see that information surfaced, make it real-time, be able to drill down and look at the individual reps and, and regions. Um, if this is all still correct, then we can go ahead and take a look at the capabilities in the software that we hope we're going to enable you to do that. So the very best case, that information is co collected in a structured way, way back <laughs> in the initial discovery conversations. Next best is to have that same conversation uh, somewhere along that timeline. And it might, it does, almost doesn't matter when it is because they're making a change. 
But somewhere before, if you will, you're asked to actually deliver a demo to those capabilities. The third case, which is fully acceptable, um, is to give you the classic example, set up an hour meeting for the, and I'm doing air quotes again, for the demo, but invest the first 10 to 20 to 30 minutes, perhaps, actually doing the discovery that should have been done previously mm-hmm. so that you can then actually structure uh, the demo for that second portion of that meeting based on what you learned in the first portion. That is perfectly reasonable to do. Anybody that's well-versed with their customers and well-versed with their software should be reasonably confident and facile and being able to, to, if you will, do those kinds of changes and pivots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, three cases way back in, in uh, pre-sales, um, a day or two or a week before you're actually asked to give this as the customer uh, success representative. And very frankly, the day of the demo is acceptable if both parties are willing to have that conversation. Mm. I think one of the next challenges for me is, um, you know, even following these sort of steps and you've done your discovery, you started with the sort of end goal first and you've created that inspiration. Um, One of the things that I'm definitely guilty of um, and uh, yeah, can be quite a challenge is I guess, keeping the engagement levels high and do you have any sort of strategies or, or tips and advice in terms of if you're trying to explain something that's relatively um, complex and requires sort of multiple steps and maybe you have to there's like a, a large amount of a big block of dialogue for you to sort of explain the point what would you recommend in terms of keeping people switched on because I, I guess there's you know so many distractions for people now someone takes out their work phone and checks an email and then immediately <laughs> sort of lost them so um do, do you have any sort of recommendations on keeping people engaged yes yes and you used the key word there dialogue and a dialogue implies what the, uh, yeah, two-way, I guess. Two-way, yeah. Um, I, last week, I came across a study by an organization called Intercall, wherein they, they found three frightening statistics with respect to web meetings. Um, three numbers I identified, 65%, 55%, and 21%. Any idea what those three numbers relate to? This, we're, we're digressing, but it's fun. I guess it's something around like how many people are actually like the percentage of people that are watching the screen or actually focusing on what's being presented. <laughs> it's actually probably the inverse of that. They say that 65% of people in, in typical web meetings are, are trying to multitask. They're trying to yeah. do some other, something else. Um, 55% are either eating or preparing food. And by the way, it's the preparing portion that always made me go, hmm, <laughs> what are they doing? Chopping onions in front of their laptop. Um, and 21% uh, admitted that they were online shopping. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so the answer goes back, yeah, it's very sad, but very true. The answer goes back to your keyword, a dialogue. Um, are, you, are you guys familiar with the company called Gong, gong.io out in San Francisco? No. So, so this is a company, there's a couple of, of similars. Uh, Refract out in your neck of the woods, um, refract.ai, you're familiar with them? No, no. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All of these companies take recordings of uh, conversations with customers, recordings of sales conversations, recordings of demos, recordings of customer success conversations, analyze them with respect to uh, key attributes and success against the objectives. So, for example, in the case of demos, it would be 
uh, did this demo progress the process to the next sales stage, okay, as mapped out of uh, CRM systems. What they found was really intriguing. They found, Gong found, that the most successful demos enjoyed speaker switches that took place on average every, well, any guesses of how many minutes or seconds? I guess at least every few minutes, surely. I, I would imagine it's quite a short time frame. 76 seconds. Wow. A minute and a quarter. Now that's on average. And what you and I just did, where I asked you a question, you suggested an answer, I offered the number and you said, oh, wow, that each of those is a speaker switch. Mm -hmm. So on app, and there's a speaker switch. So on average, if you're seeing something that's around a minute to two minutes where you hear somebody responding in some way or asking a question, offering a comment, or just some interaction, you're doing really well. If you've been, <laughs> conversely, if you've been talking for three or five or seven or nine minutes, and all you've heard is from the audience, <laughs> you are at risk. <laughs> and yeah, I actually did that. Um, so that was pretty good. <laughs> thank you very much. I, I, I use that to prove a point. Um, so you've, you've got to drive interactivity. In fact, now over the web, it's even more important, of course, to do so. So, you know, especially large people. To, yeah. Say again. No, I was gonna say, especially in larger groups. I think that's where we probably find one of the, the biggest challenges. Like when you've got, cause sometimes we can do demos to like maybe 30, 40, if not more. Mm -hmm. these almost like a webinar kind of format where we will also require some conversation to happen in order to kind of gauge interest and, and develop the conversation along um and you you can be in instances where you just you sometimes don't get anything back um and continue with with the demo and, and kind of finish it all the way up until the end which is probably the the worst thing that you can do but i suppose with that I guess, are there any tips around if you have a large number of people that just aren't engaging on a call, what perhaps maybe is the best thing to do? Is it to just cancel the meeting, rebook it in, in smaller groups, or would you have any questions that you would ask where people are more likely to respond? I don't know. It would be yeah, good to explore that. So uh, two sets of things. Number one, using things like the menu approach is a delightful way to begin to drive interactivity because mm. you're, you're gently but firmly forcing your audience to engage because you're, you're going to say, okay, how many of you are interested in this first menu topic? And to, just to give me a sense, what are your job titles so that I've got an idea of how important it is, how it aligns. So you're already forcing the audience to communicate that way. And then, then your objective is to keep that going, either with the microphones or using chat, for example, which is a great way to engage when the microphones are all muted. That's a whole nother, the idea of driving interactivity uh, and engaging over the web is a totally separate topic. And maybe that should be a separate podcast to, uh, to contemplate. Yeah. Um, Definitely. But I, do no, wanna, good. I do want to go back to the idea of a value realization event. Um, I'll, I'll develop this as a story a little bit mm. way back last century. <laughs> Let's say that. Um, when I was buying CRM system, I was buying a sales operation system. I was buying a bunch of other software for the team. Um, when you invest $100,000 in your company's money in a tool like a CRM system, um, 
an enormous pressure descends onto your shoulders. What what is that pressure related to? I suppose we're the expectation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's you have basically said to your CFO, "I need a hundred thousand dollars that I can invest better than you can." <laughs> That's basically what you're saying. And so, what your CFO and yourself and your the rest of the C-suite is looking for is realizing the gains associated with that investment. And um, that, in the you know, the moment that you sign the license agreement is when the pressure descends on your shoulders. Is it lifted when you go live? And the answer is actually no. You've gone live, but you've gotten zero value out of the, the, the system so far. The value of an empty database, like a CRM system, is what? It's zero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all potential energy. Um, so what we teach people to do is to identify, discuss, and agree upon a value realization event. And that is one small win. It's one small turn of the crank which enables uh, whoever the, well, in this case, the buyer, but anybody, to be able to declare a small but significant victory that is associated with a small piece of the overall ROI. Not, not the full ROI, because that could take year or six months or years, but just one small victory, one small win. And the example, at the carrying our, our CRM system example forward, um, it could be that once the forecasts and pipelines have been loaded into the system, and that takes some time, the first time uh, me as the head of sales is able to pull the report or run the, the dashboard that shows um, the pipelines for my various salespeople that enables me to say, oh, hey, Alex, it looks like you know, you're really strong in these first couple of phases, but then you know, you need, it looks like you need some help. Um, maturing some of these these folks that have been sitting in the proposal out phase, <laughs> let's say, um, that have been sitting that way for three or four or five months. Let's take a look at that. That is a value realization event because that's the first time I'm able to say to my um, my peers or my management, my bosses, I'm able to say, hey. I was the first time I was able to actually take a look at an individual person's forecast, make some changes, and now Alex is moving down the pathway where it's already looking more fruitful. Hooray! And that pressure begins to lift from my shoulders. That's called a value realization event. And I teach folks to uncover those for each individual, for each job title that's relevant in the buying and implementation process, to uncover that information in discovery pre-sales and that information that gets passed to the implementation team so that they know that when they're working with the head of sales they should be setting up and making sure that the reports the dashboards the alerts um, anything the head of sales needs to be able to achieve that value excuse me that value realization event he or she can achieve it as uh, confidently and as rapidly as possible post go live so let me pause there and ask, does that, does that resonate? Comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, that's especially important from a customer success perspective as well. And I guess the, the reason for that is it's about the ongoing support of the client as well or the customer as well. So I guess we'll, we'll often find ourselves in scenarios where you might have uh, done a demonstration to a bunch of, of end users and you sort of onboarded them. And then you know a few months down the line, you might be onboarding uh, their colleagues or a completely different department within the same organization. And if you have basically a, a sort of catalog of value realization moments, they're almost like your 
um, I guess the use cases or the case studies that you can then yeah. use to to the mm-hmm. next team, and it's it's going to resonate even more if it's something that they can relate to. And if you, as let's say that you've never gotten the information from pre-sales or sales or implementation, it's all new. There's no reason why you also can't sit down with that specific job title and go through, well, what is a small win for you? So, you know, um, customer success team. Well, no, like let's not use customer success for the customer success. Um, you going back to the CRM, you're talking to somebody in marketing, let's say a new tranche of, of people that are being onboarded. You're sitting there with the marketing folks and you're saying, well, what's, you know, what would be a value realization event for you? Um, and he or she says, well, I'm not sure, as you pointed out, you may want to have a catalog available to say, well, other similar organizations found that when they were able to identify the first sales uh, qualified lead, that that was a reasonable celebration that came out of the uh, the new CRM system. Hooray! It's not 100 leads, it's not 1,000 leads, but it's our first and we can type a message to everybody that says, hey, we have our first sales qualified lead. It was confirmed by the salesperson that it was in fact a good lead. Hooray, let's continue turning the crank. So if you sit down with the individual job title, identify it, and then not just identify it, but set a, a calendar agreement. Hey, dear marketing person, let's plan to reconnect a week from today and see how you've how you are doing with making progress against that little value realization event, you're showing um, direct interest in his or her success and an ability to actually track the progress as you're moving forward mutually. I love value realization events for customer success. I think that's great. Because I think sometimes as well, the challenge that we have at at the end of perhaps maybe the first year um, is actually showing (laughs) the the ROI for a number of products because sometimes it won't be linked. But if you're able to pinpoint where they have achieved value and then help them present that back internally it makes your job a lot easier and it also helps you build advocates because i think sometimes like you say there is a risk when somebody invests within your product and you need to do a really great job of helping sell them internally with your products or service um so we talk a lot on on some of these episodes around building those like almost champions that by using your product, it will increase their chances of perhaps maybe being promoted. And it sounds like that's probably an excellent way to do that. If you can identify where they're able to showcase value, that's going to help them look good and help you look good at, at the same time. Vigorous head nodding in agreement. I think one of the challenges with a lot of customer success organization, I have to do a little bit of full disclosure here. way back last century again, my, I had a job title for uh, two years, which was um, Vice President Customer Success Marketing. So I w- <laughs> we were actually doing it um, long before it became fashionable, fashionable to do it. And it was, it was for the same reasons, although not, we weren't trying to get renewals. We were trying to get expansions effectively. Um, and we we're trying to ensure that we had solidified our user populations because ultimately we were being paid by the user. Um, and, you know, churn, although again, not identified as such last century, was still exactly the same thing. Um, value realization events are absolutely delightful, both for the customer and for the vendor. And there's a huge difference between activity and success. So just because somebody's quote unquote using capabilities or features in a system 
doesn't necessarily map to success that then rolls up to an ROI. And I think that's something that, that people have to understand um, when they're, when they're, the customer success folks have to understand when they're working with their, their, uh, their customers and the customer teams. Mm-hmm. It's not just, are you using the software, but are you using the software productively to achieve your individual goals and objectives? happens all too often as well because you look at um and again this is where probably the example i gave you around what i'd want to see in a dashboard that's where sometimes it can be deceiving based on what i said i'd want to see so are they using Mm -hmm. the product have they engaged with us and from that internal view it might be like yeah they're they're one of our best customers um they're getting loads of value but if you're not tracking those value realization moments like you say it might be that they're not and another vendor comes along and then they are able to see that with that vendor and they perhaps maybe churn. So um, completely agree with you on that. With, um, with respect to soft skills training, teaching, for example, great demo workshops, um, we apply a value realization method pretty directly. Um, are you familiar with the term smile sheets? No. No, okay, they're shaking their heads no, and you can't see it on the podcast. Um, <laughs> a smile sheet is, is the American term for <clears throat> the surveys that are done immediately after any soft skills training. Mm-hmm. And they're called smile sheets because that's exactly what they are. They're looking, the, the instructor is hoping that everybody rates that, the instructor, you know, good or great, <laughs> and therefore everybody's smiling. But a smile sheet, in other words, a survey that's done immediately following some kind of a training shows no indication as to whether or not the training stuck or whether or not any value was achieved as a result or returned uh, as a result of applying it. So we do great demo training sessions. We'll do periodic follow-up messages, which are designed so at a month, at two months, at three months, at four months, at six months, at nine months, at 12 months, at 18 months out, we are, we are pinging our customers the people that have been through a workshop and asking the question, do you have any success stories that you would like to share? Mm. Because it's the post soft skills training success stories that represent the value realization events. And what we'll often do is, is re-socialize them throughout the same customer organization because success breeds success. Um, so it's one thing to deliver soft skills training and everybody goes, oh, that was a great session, but it's an entirely useless if it doesn't result in uh, needle movement as measured by, you know, better demos as communicated by customers saying, wow, that was terrific. And I want to buy your product or a salesperson saying, wow, that's the best demo I've ever seen. The customer's really engaged and we're moving forward to the next stage of the, of the process or a customer success person saying, wow, that's the best demo that we've ever delivered because guess what? We now have adoption and expansion beyond what we'd ever expected. I think that's pretty the missing the missing piece actually sometimes because all of the customer success roles I've been within, there's definitely been an expectation to to gather those success stories, especially probably more so for marketing, so that they can repurpose those as as case studies. But I suppose if you're asking your customers or your clients for success stories, and if they're not able to give you answers to that, it is probably the biggest indicator of risk straight away. Um, Absolutely. So Yep. see that as being a really important KPI even for, for probably most teams uh, to implement. I'm, I'm nodding my head vigorously in agreement. <laughs> Fantastic. And by the way, those, um, those success stories become the high, typically speaking, the high probability use cases 
that mm-hmm. you can then reflect back when you're starting a customer success process or workflow with your customers again. You know, the going back to our CRM's example, if you have a high probability use case or two or three for each significant job title, you can actually use those as uh, suggestive templates when you're interacting with your customers. Mm-hmm. You know, along the line and in a menu along the lines of, dear head of sales, how important is the ability to surface and be able to work with pipelines and forecasts and be able to coach your teams as well as just know what your numbers are going to be. They go, that's incredibly important. Well, good. Here's an example of how other similar customers have done that. Are you interested in exploring that more deeply? Absolutely. Boom. You're off and running. Fantastic. I think that's the, probably the biggest takeaway for me actually is go work on straight away the success stories and the value realization, because I think that is integral to get right. Probably at every stage, like you said, thinking about when, SDRs are having that initial conversation, capturing all that information from the client and then carrying that through all the way until they become a client and then onwards when you're talking about renewals, being able to help them on that on that journey almost and track that with them. One of the, the kind of final questions I've got is based on based on this conversation, what would be the biggest takeaway that you think somebody listening right now should go and implement? So I'm a big advocate for when you learn insight whether that's from a book from a podcast go and action that straight away what would you say would be the key thing that somebody should take away from this episode i'll give you three number one do sufficient discovery in a structured way based on individual job title what that what is that person's top level challenges in other words what are they trying to achieve what's getting in the way today what specific capabilities they're looking for and what tangible gain are they looking for as a result of making the change. So number one is do sufficient discovery. Number two, based on that discovery, show them the end deliverables with respect to the demo, show them the end deliverables that you believe matches closely to those desires. And if they resonate, number three, fewest number of clicks. (laughs) I like it. Awesome. Fantastic. I think we've um, we've referenced a few things throughout the, the conversation today, including um, obviously your book. So it'd be great if you could just give us a bit of detail for anyone that's listening and wants to go ahead and find out a bit more. Where can they? Yeah, where can they find some of the the resources that you've mentioned today and find out a bit more about you as well if they want to? Sure. Well, nobody really wants to know more about me, but I'll I'll <laughs> offer the the access anyway. So with respect to the book, great demo um, is on Amazon.com in paperback, audiobook, and Kindle formats, so easy to access. Um, it may soon be available in common language Chinese here in a, in a month or two. I've got a gentleman who's volunteered to, um, uh, to translate it, so if you're in China and listen to this, greatdemo.com is our website, and it actually has a terrific range of resources, including uh, articles. There are 50, 60, 80 articles on a range of different topics, uh, including some of the things that we talked about today, the menu approach, um, why structure a demo like a newspaper article and, and other similar concepts are all available on the articles page. And then there's also our blog, which is more designed to offer tips and best practices and new ideas and tools. And in fact, there's a lot of tips in the blog most recently on how to drive interactivity and operate most effectively and best practices when you're operating over the web and you either cannot see your customer or you're operating over Zoom or GoToMeeting or WebEx or whatsoever. 
So the book on Amazon, greatdemo.com for articles and similar resources in the blog. And if you really want to know about me, the About Us page has a sad little description of my background. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, really, really insightful episode. Uh, so really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us. Well, Dan and Alex, thanks very much. The pleasure was mine.